0: cheese and pickle Hello, this is Comfort Blanket, I'm Joel Morris I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like Uh, a book or a TV show or a film or a record that they return to again and again because they know it will never let them down something warm and safe, no guilty pleasures just really good stuff Um, and we'll have a little look at it and try and work out where the magic gets in and how it works my guest this time is the broadcaster and journalist Jude Rogers. Jude writes brilliantly on all sorts of music, folk and pop and everything, um, and presented a great radio series called A Life in Music, about how we grow up and how music affects us as we, as we age, um, and has written a new book called The Sound of Being Human, about the same subject, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and she will be talking about the song Freedom by the group Wham!
1: When we got to the airport, it was obvious that the whole, the whole two weeks was going to be totally chaotic because nobody knew what to do with it, so we were just, like, wondering about... In fact, probably the most chaotic scenes I've ever seen in my life. I really don't think they had any idea at all of what to expect as far as uh, a Western pop band.
2: No more than we did.
0: So you have chosen Freedom by Wham! as your comforting thing. It's full of energy. What, what makes you feel so safe and warm with Freedom?
2: Oh, comfort to me has to sort of give you this warm glow and make you smile. Yeah, being comfortable makes me want to just grab people I love and give them a big hug or dance with them or (laughs) whatever. This song is a song I can put on at any point. If I'm miserable as sin, if I'm, you know, a bit bored or whatever, if I put it on or if I just hear it, it has this instant effect. It just makes me feel... Oh, I just, you know, makes me want to exhale. <laughs> it's like, oh, this, <laughs> it's so lovely. And the reason is, you know, a very deep seated one. And, you know, like a lot of, you know, a lot of us who have favourite songs, quite often they're taking us back to a memory or to a connection with a person or, you know, something that is about, you know, you have a relationship with a song, really. If it's been with you through your life, you know, it's a reminder of this thing that is in some ways, you know, not changed, you know. Yeah. Freedom by Wham has not changed since it was recorded. But, you know, it's not, you know, suddenly gained three extra bars and, you know, from beyond the grave with George. That's why it's
0: upsetting when artists go back and revisit their previous work. You want to go,
2: no, Ooh. it has to stay mm. the same. I absolutely agree. You know, and I take that to, I can't listen to craft work on remastered CD. I have to hear the bits of cassette, which sound a bit crap, you know, because it's all, that's what you remember. Anyway, why do I find it comforting? So I love Freedom by Wham for a reason that is outwardly a bit sad, Um, although it is not something that makes me feel sad at all. So my dad died when I was five and three quarters, um, quite suddenly. And, you know, obviously after that, you know, there was quite a time. Um, You know, obviously I was quite little, so my memories are very shaky at that period. But I do remember... My, well, my first memory, in fact, after that happened, that I, has any sort of solidity to me and has images around it, is hearing freedom. Now, this happened in school. I was in the changing room in school after gym class or something. Um, I remember I had shoes with laces and I really wanted to tie them up. You know, I, I, you know, I was quite young for that, but I remember I really wanted to be grown up. But, you know, I ambition. I, yeah, ambition. <laughs> I wanted to do my laces. Um, but I think, you know, I was, you know, what happened happened and made me tried to grow up quite quickly in some ways. But I have this yeah. image of me, I'd taken my daps off, as we say in the South Wales, my little, you know, <laughs> gym shoes. And I was trying to put these shoes on. It could have been buckles, I don't know. But I'm putting my shoes on. No, it was definitely laces. I see, I'm doubting myself. You know, memory is this fascinating thing linked to music. And I go into this in great detail with much cleverer people than me, neuroscientists and the like, in the book. Anyway, I'm there and there's a radio playing in the hall, which the cleaners have left on. And the song comes out. What is this? And just being transfixed and there. You know, I think about it and think, you know, why were the other kids not there? Oh, they must have gone into the yard. You know, did I hear all of it? Um, maybe I heard some of it, but it made enough of an impact. Whatever I heard that day, you know, it happened there. And I've since talked to other people about memories that they've had quite young of songs. And, you know, it's like sometimes a smell for somebody can catapult them back to a certain place yeah. and a scene. This was that for me, you know, and it made me then at you know I must have been about six you know um, because it came out later in 84 by which time I was about six and a half by which time you can remember things you know again I've asked much cleverer people than me about this to try and pin down these musical memories but it filled me with this kind of joy and it still fills me with joy now and from 1984 onwards you know almost to the end of that decade, you know, the things I remember from childhood, you know, distinctly are, you know, terrible things that happened, you know, big news events, disasters, you know, Chernobyl and, you know, the shuttle blowing up and, you know, all these things that, you know, you could have heard of these things as a kid, you know, they're quite potent. The shuttle Challenger exploded soon after liftoff. But I also remember specific songs and where they took me and freedom takes me to that changing room. It absolutely does, you know, and, and that moment. There's shortcuts.
0: It's a thing you can pick up that remains the same, that is a key to an emotion or a feeling or a time. Yes. It's time travel. It's absolutely time travel because the the artefact you're looking at hasn't aged or changed. People who collect stuff, books and videos and DVDs and records, they're sometimes using it as a library of emotions that you know you can take that emotion, the emotion Mm. of joy, sadness, hunger, loneliness, you can take it off the shelf and put it on. And that gives you an illusion and a pretty convincing and probably true illusion that you can control and master and manage your emotions. If you're worried that you might get overcome by emotions, like having a library of feelings. And the great thing about a song or a book or favorite thing, the reason you keep them, the reason people don't, a lot of us don't give them away is you go, well, I want to be able to reach for that. Yeah. And I want to be able to push that button and remember myself and remember that time, remember that feeling. But The the one that, that is hardest, I suppose, is joy. What a, or a difficult thing to bottle.
2: I do have various playlists on streaming services, which are like, Instant Joy is one of them, and this is the first track. (laughs) um, Perfect. It just is, though. It's the way the melody unfurls, you know, George's voice. I had this instant visceral reaction to the song and its structure and its sound and its tunes and its textures. interrogate in the book quite a lot whether you know i look into it, how do i make sure that this memory has some foundation you know and i find out about how you know we reconstruct memories as well all the time you know they're not these solid things but i have this memory i am trying to put my shoes on and um this song just came on and i just remember going What is this? You know, just instantly announces itself. It's a fanfare. Absolutely. It's a fanfare. It made me feel good. And later on, I started to get to know who I'm were by watching Saturday morning television. You know, that was the main way I found out about pop stars at that point. I wasn't yet buying music magazines or even you know younger music magazines you know I was still buying bunty probably <laughs> um, <laughs> i just used to watch saturday morning tv and you know these pop stars would come in for phone ins and there'd be a video played or there'd be a little interview or something
1: what? <laughs> Because Joanna Monroe from That's Life Is On, so is Shakin' Stevens going around his record factory, and George and Andrew from
2: Wham! If you fancy decorating your fringe or even growing one overnight, Lindsay Walker will be telling you how. You get a sense of who they might be, you know, what they might be like, and then that gets wrapped around the song as yeah. well. So I sort of saw them on it, and um, you know I love George and Andrew's crazy hair, and they were really fun, and they seemed to be good friends. They just seem to be having the best time of their life. And I think I linked up in my head, you know, the idea of who Wham were and who these boys were with um, this song and the joy.
1: It's uh, We've got a new, a new single coming out. It's only about two or three weeks, actually. From Class. the album? No, it's not. it's not from the album. It's a brand new one. Great last Christmas, Mm -hmm. sleigh bells and everything. (laughs) And the cover is amazing. You've never seen us look so stupid in your life.
0: That seems very important to children, I think, when you talk about pop that really hits children. Sometimes the people who are making the pop being friends is really important because friends are so important to kids. Gangs are so important, little clubs and and your best friend. You realise the appeal of the Spice Girls was because their first song was about how important your friends were when you were a little girl and the Beatles look like a bunch of friends. Uh, the Madness yeah. I remember being really exciting when I was a kid Madness they looked like they were having a brilliant fun they were a bunch of boys having fun um, and Wham! totally look like what they are which is two best friends from the back of the bus in Bushy but yeah. more glamorous and better than than that but like they appear to have just stumbled upon the perfect life that two best friends could have. And that's what they were selling in yeah. the videos.
2: And, you know, I remember the video to Wake Me Up Before You Go, Go. You know, they're messing about, but they're grinning and they've got some girls around them and they're wearing brightly coloured clothes. You know, they've got all this stuff going on. The video to Club Tropicana, I remember. And, you know, they're on holiday and they're abroad. And, you know, this is when that was starting to happen <laughs> for people like in families like me. And it was just escapism and joy and, you know... because the lyrics of the song are not the thing I find comfort in. And right. it's weird, really weird. You know, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily listen to lyrics anyway. You just, you know, respond viscerally to the sound of it or whatever. But I think it was only, you know, as an adult that I properly listened to the lyrics. And I was like, oh, his girlfriend is obviously, you know, or yeah, you know, it was his girlfriend then, obviously, in the songs. Um, was,
0: um, 100%. 100%. Oh, yeah. I remember reading smash hits and it was always about whether Mark Almond was going to find the right girl. It was very much... <laughs> that era wasn't it
2: (laughs) yeah
0: when are you gonna settle down george find a nice lady
2: but he was he had a girlfriend or you know george's character had a girlfriend that wanted to be with other people but no he wanted you know her to be with him but you know
1: that didn't
0: enter my brain. It's an interesting sentiment for the time because it's a song with the chorus freedom. And normally in pop, freedom means I want freedom. I want Mm. liberation. I want to escape. That hook, I don't want your freedom. Freedom is hit really hard. So you hear freedom as a kid and you go, yeah, it's about freedom. And then when (laughs) you listen to it, you go, oh, no, he doesn't want freedom. It's a very good early marker of how clever George Michael is as a songwriter. His hook is not wanting what a pop song normally wants, which is very clever, very witty because he wrote this when he was about 19 or oh, something. Oh, yeah. It's you an know, incredibly clever bit of writing.
2: I really love how he wrote all these songs as a teenager in Bushy <laughs> on the bus. That's you very know, Paul
0: McCartney. That's very, very yeah. like... You're, you're on the bus, you, he's just... He's bubbling with melody and bubbling with talent and bubbling with ideas.
2: I tell you, in terms of the lyrics, the, you're completely right, the way the freedom leaps out. You know, it's just the, the rhythm that some of the lyrics fit around is what yeah. I responded to. So, you know, at the end of the chorus, you, he goes the rhythm of that and and also you respond to that as a kid because you get what that means yeah you know it's like i want you and somebody singing to you saying i want you you know to be part of my gang or to love me as a pop star you know you, you just know that statement means i want to include you you know and it feels really good
0: that's a good old-fashioned pop bit of songwriting is you you look out yeah. at the audience and you go, I want to hold your hand and you address yeah. it straight to the fans, to the girls in the front row. It's a really good, I mean, a complete understanding, complete mastery of how to do a pop song aimed at teenagers.
2: I always remember my big response and my big response still is to the brilliant bridge between the verse and the chorus and it goes... great writing but it's also the melody that it goes with you have this bass line going down and you feel like you're being taken on this slightly emotional journey with him and it's basically the greatest Motown pastiche ever it's incredible
0: incredibly well done, isn't it? It's just, it could be dismissed as a sheer pastiche, but I think what it is, it's not a parody and it's not a rip-off. It's someone who's listened to Holland, Dozier Holland, worked out how they work, copied it, like all kids do, like the Beatles did, like all comedians do. You watch your masters and you learn at their feet and then you replicate it. It's got those chords, it's got that bass line, it's got that bang, 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 classic Motown drum part. It's amazing for something so 80s and slick and modern that it is so old fashioned. It refers back to great pop that your parents would have liked from from 20 years ago. So they probably won't mind you buying it. But it's one of those great 80s confections that when we, our generation, heard them, we didn't know what they were referring to. So it's not like it's nostalgic for us. It just sounds like good pop. Maybe it sounds like pop you might have heard on radio before. So it feels familiar. It might be the kind of thing your parents might have played at a birthday party before to get the kids up to do Pass the Parcel. So it feels familiar. (laughs) I think it's important that we were probably exposed to the monkeys on Saturday morning TV or something. So we knew about classic brill building songwriting. But it sort of feels immediately familiar. But it's not nostalgic because it's aimed at eight to eleven year olds yeah. who don't know this stuff it's really yeah. clever
2: I think that's interesting you're saying it has those echoes of songs that came before but you can't replace really them you know, I was listening to the other day and I was thinking about the piano in the middle eight and it's said like, it's really ABBA baby, baby, baby. and I know you know, my first memory is of ABBA. My dad, my mum tells me, I don't remember this, but he liked ABBA. So this is music because it was around me. So maybe there was a little connection being sparked yeah. there. Um, you know, and I think it's just the melody writing. You know, I was really fascinated. And why did I respond to this song? And yes, so there may be echoes of connections with family members playing it. But I spoke to this amazing, to call him a writer is just not enough. A guy called Philip Ball. He's a scientist. He's a historian. He's written all these amazing books about biology and warfare and all this stuff um, <laughs> he's amazing but he also wrote a book called the music instinct um in 2010 right. and he he picks apart in you know great detail you know how melody lines work you know how key changes work how we respond to them there's quite a bit of you know music theory tied into it and I'm somebody who you know classic South Whalian girl you know chapel choir <laughs> um you know that's where I learned my trade and then I obviously wandered off to the dark side but you know you have you know that melody you can of, and that connection to music within you. But he described how, you know, pop writing, how it's about leaps and patterns of leaps and, and repetitions. And it's about creating a language that is surprising enough for us to anticipate, you know, what's coming next, but not being sure what is coming next. Um, it's really fascinating.
0: You talk about this in the book, and I thought it was a brilliant thing because it's something that I'm fascinated with with, with all forms of writing. I think it applies beyond music, that what you're doing is you're playing games with the audience mm. on anticipation and surprise. Yeah. Everything is rule of three. Everything is set something up. What do you think is coming next? And either confirming it, which makes you happy because, oh, I got it right. I win a prize. (laughs) Or, oh, I didn't see that coming. And you win a prize because you're excited. We're just playing pattern games with each other all the time. And so much art is to do with patterns of colour or sound or words or ideas. And the brain seems to like it. And listening to this, I took it apart afterwards. I mean, I've not got any music theory. I self-taught guitar. But I sat down with the chords and went... This is great. This is a classic. How do you write a great pop song that goes straight in? Same chords all the way through. Doesn't mess about. C G D minor A anyway, minor. It's a really simple set of Motown chords. Very supremesy. A little mm. bit like um, like I can't help myself. Oh, uh, yeah, you yeah, and yeah. nobody else. That one. Yeah. Which again is the chord that surprises you there as it goes from C to D minor, and which he's doing in this, which is very similar to the chords of Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. <laughs> The classic thing of the last number one hit and the new number one hit are kind of cut from the same cloth, this sort of Motown template that just says, good fun and surprise. Which yeah. I think is what it's got in common with ABBA is that there's nothing in this that is lazy. The the jumps and the leaps and the melodic things. It's a lovely catchy verse with a lovely big fanfare hook, uh, a whoa, 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 a lovely sort of celebration and exultation at the beginning. And then when it gets to that chorus, which is the same chords again, finding these notes that you haven't touched that are in that, that scale finding those sort of flattened sevenths and things in there that just you're not seeing coming and it's leaping and jumping and yeah. falling but always landing back on its feet
2: Girl, right now is yeah, it's like watching a
0: cat come out of a tree <laughs> it's just brilliant
2: yeah, I did this bit in, in the book where I sort of try and pick apart it Um, you know, feeling very embarrassed about doing so because I'm, you know, probably the least musical in my family. My Both my brothers are music teachers and music conductors and my mum and dad play. And it's like, ah, I've done this right. But kind of, you have, at one point you have like, um, so you have an octave, so it's like C to C. And it goes from C to like a flattened sense so it's not quite at the octave. you're there going oh I'm nearly there I'm nearly there you're teetering you're teetering but you're not quite there then at the end of the chorus he overshoots it and he goes to a nine so he goes and I'm not going to sing it because I I always try and sing it in front of my son and he laughs his head (laughs) off because I can never reach it Glasses shatter and all that, but obviously George Michael, amazing singer, he nails it and then just falls back and it's resolved and then it's like, girl, all I want right now is you. Girl, all I want right now is you. And it's like, yay! All the kind of sadness is gone. <laughs> it's a lovely
0: moment. It's this somersault because he reaches up and he he goes for that. The first big leap, the big tonal leap, is up to that. It's a flattened seventh. It's nearly the octave. Yeah. So he's. It feels like he sort of leapt a ledge and not quite grabbed it and then fallen down. And the second one, he goes further and lands safely on top of it. And then comes down, arms out, beautiful gymnastic landing. I love the feeling there are some songs that are horizontal. That have a sort of rhythm and an aggression and a, uh, a feeling that very much, and always say the difference in the Beatles is John Lennon writes quite horizontal melody lines. Di, 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 I and you and you. Not huge difference in the note but a lot of percussion and and propulsion and energy and the come together kind of vibe yeah and the, and the rhythm McCart- the guitar
2: and all that stuff yeah. yeah
0: and the paul mccartney thing is to keep leaping and jumping yeah, and this absolutely. is absolutely this is something in that paul mccartney thing of just a very very vertical very very generous beach boysy baccaraki sort of that ambition to keep jumping for notes you're not expecting and this is in a piece of pop that's meant to just make teenagers happy or pre-teens happy. It's a very young audience, but it's a very sophisticated bit of great songwriting because I think he's aiming to make something as good as the pop songs he loves. And he sincerely loves them. There's a lovely quality to this. And I think to all of George Michael's songwriting is that he's not ashamed to be working in this medium. He thinks this is brilliant Mm. and he wants to be the best in the world at this. It's interesting that he went and he wanted to be more adult so quickly after Wham! But at this point, he wants to be able to write the best jukebox pop songs that are going to throw the floor open at a school disco and be completely irresistible. He's mastering that craft.
2: This is just before Careless Whisper which is interesting where you know the idea of who George Michael was became a bit different and I remember when I encountered that George Michael when I was a kid I didn't like it because it was like oh this is a bit grown up I don't know what this (laughs) is but um, I always defend freedom as well because people talk about oh great George Michael songs and obviously there's a huge list. And if we discount, you know, anything after a different corner, even look at his, his early stuff, um, his indie stuff. (laughs) um, (laughs) if If we look at his early stuff, you know, people will talk about everything she wants, and they'll talk about young guns or something like that. Freedom always gets forgotten and it was a number one. You know, it was a little bit after their first rush of success but, you know, it was loved. I wonder if because it was a Motown homage rather than a pastiche I'd say, you know, that's why people could have discounted yeah. it a bit. I think people do sometimes, I remember when, you know, Amy Winehouse's, when Back to Black came out people were like, oh it's a, you know, homage to Motown. I was like, yeah, what are you on about? It's, yeah, it takes that but it does so much more with it and I think...
0: I'm a fan of homage and pastiche. Yeah, I'm tried to to write some notes for I was either a book or a talk or something and I was trying to argue that all the greatest art often started as pastiche I think it's quite hard to find anything in Davy Bowie's back catalogue that isn't a pastiche or didn't start trying yeah. to a pastiche and then transcended it and became something brilliant the amount of great art that starts with you colouring inside the lines yeah. of something yeah. Because um, you're trying I'm, on I'm different a, a, per-
2: ideas, aren't you? You're trying on different personalities. Yeah. And, I don't know. think there's
0: any shame in it. You can create great art out of pastiche. The thing that I think maybe that's interesting about Freedom is that it gets dismissed, whereas Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, which is just a smash hit, number one, which is built on exactly the same formula, from exactly the same parts,
2: yeah, definitely. is usually
0: regarded as like their high point. You go, this is another one of those. I think it's, it's an equal song, and it's full of ideas. Mm. It doesn't do anything lazy. got no key change in it. I was kind of waiting for it, because it's a long song. It's four minutes plus, which is long. A classic 80s dance hit to be slightly longer than than the the Motown original. But you'd think it would reach for a key change, and it doesn't. Instead, it turns into Penny Lane at the end. It's this incredible shift into of trilling brass and trumpets. It's got so many unexpected turns in it. It's very generous.
2: Generous is the right word. It kind of makes me think of, you know, when I listen to ABBA, I've mentioned ABBA before, but it's like, you know, everything is it's packed with stuff. <music> You know, the the end is just, has a different sort of energy and it's Penny Lane is spot on, it's kind of got this pastoral late 60s, <laughs> very English feel to it. I love how when George Michael did Faith, he takes the chorus melody of Freedom, played on, on an organ, and it's played right at the beginning before the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do kicks in. I wrote a piece about this, I think it was in that time after he died. Um, You know, I think, yeah, for Billboard magazine in the US, they would do this big celebration of him. And they wanted people to write about their favourite piece of music by George, so obviously I wrote about this. (laughs) And he was playing around um, in the studio, and George, you know, produced so much when he was really young as well. You know, when he was yeah. in his early 20s, he was producing all this stuff and he knew how the studio worked, which is extraordinary, really. But he was playing Freedom on, I think, some you know, fancy synthesizer and some um, whoever was with him, maybe the mixer. It's online. If you want to look at Billboard, George Michael, my name, I, you, <laughs> I, I will not guess what it is. But basically, he realised then that, you know, oh yeah, I'm quite good at this. Now good in a different register. But at the beginning of his solo career, I, it felt almost... Elegiac, or sort funereal. Yeah. It's like, you know, but also with a smile on his face, you know, it's kind of like, this is who I was. And there we go. And here is a different kind of, you know, pastiche, which is this kind of, uh, you know, 50s kind of... Well, I guess it would be nice If I could touch your
1: body And maries name Of his latest plane.
2: You know, and obviously Faith did something very different with some 50s ideas. It's interesting how those borrowings are really
0: important and the the references. And uh, I was thinking about this with with 80s pop uh, and certainly looking back on it before people were a little bit more kind towards 80s pop, when it went through a period of being very dismissed uh, and being regarded as very disposable, certainly I would imagine by a lot of rock writers and male rock writers, Mm -hmm. that you don't realise how much underneath the slick production of the drum machines and the the sound of it is very often the really basic building blocks that have always been there it was only the sound of this that is 80s really but the sound of yeah. songwriting the structure everything of all this stuff is just has been learned formally like at a master class this yeah. is grill building songwriting there's a lot of bananaramas hits that are like this and that's what you get with abc and things they're all referencing this incredibly slick crafted age of sort of factory pop uh, Adam and the Ants, but doing it with a sound that I think made people think it was somehow more plasticky and disposable than it was. And as soon as you get to a point where a few years later, your ears have evolved and yeah. you can see the structure of it, you realise that why this was a hit, why it meant so much to people and why it was as big is the same reason that The Supremes or any of those songs on, on, on Motown meant so much to those teenagers. It's another... The idea of giving something good to teenagers, saying, I've worked really hard on this and this is my gift to you, is a really nice gesture and links early Beatles and Motown and all the girl groups and this. I mean, yeah. it's a very girl group hit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I find interesting, you saying, you know, it's like he learned it master Masterclass. No, he didn't. He, you know, he lived in north-west London. Um, he is from a Cypriot immigrant family. I love the bit in Pete um, Perfidi's fantastic book, Broken Greek, where basically all the chip shop owners and restaurateurs of London are calling around saying, so-and-so's son's going to be on top of the pops tonight, and Pete is in total <laughs> denial. And then he watches it, and it's George Michael. Um, <laughs> it's the lad from the chippy. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly, just amazing. But um, I remember what he did is um, Desert Island Discs, some years ago, which was a brilliant Desert Island Discs. And when he was a kid, he had a head injury, um, you know, quite a quite bad bang on his head. Um, and before that, he'd been absolutely obsessed with insects like creepy crawlies and wow. going to you know studying them. He'd get up early and go and study them and all this stuff. And then he had this thing that happened to him. And after that, he got absolutely obsessed with music.
1: All my interests changed. Everything changed in six months. I had been obsessed with insects and creepy crawlies. I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go out into this field behind our garden and collect insects before everyone else got up. And suddenly, all I wanted to know about was music. It just seemed a very, very strange thing. And I have a theory that maybe it was something to do with this accident because this whole left brain, right brain thing... Nobody in my family seemed to notice, but I became absolutely obsessed with music and, and everything changed after that.
2: Which fascinates me anyway, you wow. know, the way that something happened to his brain chemistry or the way his brain corrected itself after that accident that made him fixated. Or you know, maybe he had one of these brains that was already, you know, not necessarily obsessive, but very analytical or faddish or whatever. And then that switched. To this, and um, you know, it's funny. I I find some comfort in thinking about George when I think about this song as well, because yeah. as a kid, I I was simply just obsessed with how music works. I didn't really understand it, but you know, I played the piano when I was little, and you know, a lot of it was just messing about myself before I had lessons. And I was just fascinated with songs and how they worked. and you know, I did go on. I did A level music, and I played the violin and did my grades and stuff. And you know, I never really taken it further than that. You know, apart from you know playing a bit of violin and keyboards in friends' bands when I was in my twenties. Mm. But um, it's funny, as a music journalist, you never get to you know go into detail on you know the yeah. music theory side of it a bit. So it's been really nice when I do the book to touch on that a bit, especially when the songs like this, which provide me with so much comfort. I should say something that provides me with comfort about this song as well, is that. It's a song, if you put that on in a disco of a group of people of a similar age and like minds, everyone will fill the dance floor. <laughs> One of my best yeah. friends from back home, Catherine, knows everything about music. She's got amazing taste, but she loves, you know, like me, she likes stuff that's thought of, you know, as critically acclaimed, but also like stuff that's seen as cheesy. You know, I basically hate the idea of guilty pleasures. You know, great music yeah. is great music. But... Me and her, you put that on, we just go, absolutely nuts. We can't help ourselves. You know, we're just pointing at each other. We're, you know, finding a table to jump onto. <laughs> but it's it's about sharing a song.
0: You do want to do air drumming. You do want to jump up and down. It's yeah. got, um, it has dance moves built into it. It's made for hairbrush and mirror. And it's got that absolutely. lovely. Absolutely. I think the thing that gets misunderstood about really, really well-made pop like this is because it's easy to consume and liked by children because it's so well-made, it's then mistaken for being simple. Yeah. But I think that you would struggle to sit down and write this and the fact that George Michael did age 19 and he said this was the song that he felt the breakthrough happened. He was 19 he went, oh, and he almost like stood back and went, oh, look what I've done.
2: Yeah.
0: The moment he realised, oh, I can write songs. And what he means is I can write songs like the songs I like. I'm not reaching for it. I'm now achieving it.
1: I was supremely confident that I was writing pop classics, to be honest with you, but um, I was also supremely aware that if I kind of left the imagery a little bit more to Andrew, kids kind of loved it.
0: This feels like, when I sort of said master class, it feels like one of those apprentices, like in a medieval uh, painter's workshop where you do your masterpiece. There's a a painting that the master has done and you as an apprentice are meant to copy it and copy it beautifully and put something of yourself in it. And I think this feels like he's sitting at the feet of the masters, the great songwriters that George admires. And this is the moment, age 19, he went, oh, I can go up and join them. And it's a piece of craft and a piece of craft indistinguishable from any other piece of craft in any other art form. And the, the proof that it worked as a piece of craft is it did its job and it went to number one, yeah. which is what these songs are meant to do.
1: And, of course, this week's number one band launched their new album tonight in the West End of London, straight after the show. Who are they? They are Wham! And here's Freedom! Wham.
2: It's also full of ambition as well, which I think is very exciting when you're a kid. You know, you just, there's all these ideas and all these sounds and this great melody and craft, as you're saying, but it's like, oh, this thing can exist in the world. And I do think that's maybe why it's stuck in my head. You know, as I say, I don't know when I heard it, but it has to be after September 1984. So that would have been nine months after my dad died. And, you know, in the 80s what i remember mainly are you know terrible things in the news and pop songs and strangely yeah. enough the comforting things are pop songs and um when i was little i wanted the fun stuff you know I write to the book as well about Adam and the Ants, and it was similar. You know, Adam Ant looked like a cartoon character, you know, in um, his early 80s guise. There's a sense
0: of that with with Wham as well, that they are happy to play up to the cartoon characters. I remember being of an age where I saw the parody of Wham that was on Spitting Image. I used to get very, very excited when a a pop group got parodied on Spitting Image, because you forget, back in the day, pop belonged to the pop magazines, newspapers didn't have a pop column, and television comedy shows very rarely did a... A parody of anyone who you knew from the charts. It was very rare. I remember when the two Ronnies did a Boy George and I went oh, they're dressed up as Boy George. But I remember <laughs> oh that uh, Spitting Image did, did a thing about women. It was all about them having pert little bottoms and beautiful hair and uh, like they're all just cute and cutesy cutesy and dumb. And I think that's what they were seen as, but you're yeah. thinking, no, they, they know. What's different about Wham and what's exciting about Wham, and I don't think I appreciated it at the time, and I completely do now, is they look like a manufactured pop band, but they're not. But they're they're not. from this great era where you could manufacture yourself.
2: Yeah, they did have, you know, Simon Apia Bell came along after the first stuff and sort of, you know, groomed them in a sense, you know, not But, they, the same already but they already
0: existed. But they already
2: existed, absolutely. They already existed. And he kind of brought the wham in China kind of project to them, and all this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, you know, as a teenager, when I kind of did my typical, "Oh, pop music's rubbish," and I already you know <laughs> sold my immaculate collection cassette in Casino Market, and then
0: I'm so sorry to hear that. I
2: know, but two months later, went back to see if he was still there because I realised, <laughs> you know. I was an idiot, you know, you, it's alright Jude, you can like the Lemonheads and Madonna, it's alright. Um, <laughs> but I remember kind of, you know, I was like, oh, George Michael, yeah, I bought that, you know, it's dumb, shiny teeth, you know, and then you get over that period. Um, it's, it's,
0: it's one of those, those criticisms that you want to sort of say to the people criticising it, it's okay, these guys know. I think one of the things that's really adorable and, and endures about George Michael is that he's clever.
2: Oh, you're very clever,
0: yeah. He's not just a pretty boy. He knows what you think about him. He knows what he's doing in those videos. He knows what he's doing in these songs. And I think an airhead, a big bouffant-haired, shiny-teethed, waggy-bottomed airhead, would not be talked about in these ways and would not be able to write these songs. The thing that's interesting is the package is something that he has made and is aware of and is playing with. And then obviously gets sick of really quickly. It it does feel a little bit like he's doing a sort of Bowie thing of saying, I created the ultimate pop star and now I have to kill them. (laughs) Um, Because you liked it too much.
2: Yeah.
1: Took a long time to shake him off after I'd finished working with him because people relate to him more than David Bowie at the time.
2: Talking about him being clever, you know, when that completely came home to me, was well into adulthood, um, you know, probably post-YouTube, when, you know, clips of old pop shows started coming on and that brilliant clip of him and Morrissey. You have him, you know, and he's wearing like a string top and earrings and he's got like <laughs> 10 cans of Elmer in his hair. And he, you know, he looks like, like a stereotype of mid-80s, male fashion you know he looks like a kind of he should be on falcon crest or something like that you know it's so very there's sort
0: of dynasty ish yeah. thing going on yeah the, yeah
2: absolutely and then he's talking about i don't know if it's new order but he talks about joy divisions and if you know you told me that when i was 18 i'd be like yeah right whatever he, of course he doesn't know anything about joy division but he's obviously knows the album and has listened to it and has thought about the musicality of that record
1: george um i wouldn't imagine he was a Joy Division fan, maybe I'm wrong. You might be wrong. <laughs> I might be wrong. <laughs> um, and I actually really liked Joy Division, or particularly their second album. What? Closer. Closer. I thought Closer. The second side of Closer is uh, one of my favourite albums. It's just beautiful. I mean, like, musically. 24 Hours, sounds like. But there was The Eternal and, uh, yeah, 24 Hours. There's, 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 there's just four tracks, which I don't even know the listing of, but they're, they're just beautiful musically. I didn't actually see it. I thought their image, all the, all the way through liking them, I thought their image was pretentious and contrived, and it did have very fascist elements to it, but um, I thought music was great.
2: And then you have Morrissey, who's just this sneering, He's you know, dismissive. oh, dismissive, going next to him, and you think, oh my goodness, what was wrong with me when I was a teenager? And the answer is, you were a teenager.
1: Joy Division were one group that, that I really didn't take to that much. For you used to go and see them in Manchester? I saw them a few times by accident, and <laughs> they, they had the spirit of, of the times, But I think it was totally false. It was like this complete affectation of people wanting to be something that they weren't. I find it quite sad, but in a musical sense, I hear nothing whatsoever.
0: And I think Andrew Ridgley afterwards said, yeah, no, we we, we did listen to Joy Division a lot. They're interested in pop, all of pop, Mm. and are critical and are studying it in a way that the supposedly studied and clever guy, Morrissey, Mm. is just dismissive and goes, I don't like it. And they don't have the luxury of being able to do that because everyone thinks they're airheads. So their response is to be doubly clever. And you do feel, watching them, that that double-edged sword of being a pop star, that Mm. no one takes the monkeys seriously and its agony. Um, A friend of mine said that, who's written a lot about the monkeys and said all the monkeys wanted to be was to be a real band. And the moment they became a real band, they fell apart like a real band. Hmm. A lot of these pop stars, they want to be taken seriously. And the moment they're taken seriously, they then get all the grief and trouble that comes with it. Sometimes their best moment is when they're using all that intelligence and angst and things to make something transcendent and joyous. Yeah. Um, early, early ABBA, early WHAM. The, the early dumb work by a lot of these artists is somehow they've managed to make something magical that seems to be impossible. Because these are people who are tortured and worried and concerned. George Michael wasn't happy with his looks, is what Anne originally oh. always says. He was always yeah. worried about it, and he go, but look at the pair of you. <laughs> You're <laughs> yeah. just incredible.
2: And the idea that he wanted to be taken seriously because you know, he's just very sensitive. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, I love smash hits deeply, but I'm sure that kind of culture of taking the mick out of him a bit didn't really yeah. help. And, you know, his upbringing, probably some of the racism he faced or the teasing. And, you know, he was worried about his weight and all this kind of stuff. And he was like, you know, but he had this confidence in himself. I'm good at this. And I want it to be taken seriously. And obviously now he is. And you know, he was in the later years of his career when he wasn't yeah. creating as much, sadly. And, you know, you really hope that... He recognised that, you know, around the time he did that um, Symphonica tour, and you know, he comes on, you know, he comes onto stage and he's singing a "Song to the Siren." You know, he's that's obviously something that he wants to do because he wants to be taken seriously. But he does it amazingly. Like Christmas Day, when we found out he died, you know, it was just, it was, you know, so sad. And
0: did you feel he'd lost someone? Like an old friend, like someone who'd been with you all the way along? Or did you feel that you hadn't given him enough love?
2: <laughs> yeah, the latter. You know, that it was 2016, right? So that was the year that started with David Bowie dying and then Prince died and then Leonard Cohen died. You know, Leonard Cohen was old and we knew he'd been ill, so that was less of a thing, but he was a very important artist to me. And, you know, I write about this in the book as well, you know, came a point when it was like, you know... I was just writing about dead people. And it was like, this doesn't feel upright." <laughs> right. You know, to make a living from writing about dead people. When George Michael died and we're finding out, we were like, the, the main reaction was like, no. And the fact that it was Christmas and, you know, lo- you know, we'd been dancing to last Christmas in the kitchen the night before. And um, oh, and December song by him from the late 2000s, you know, is one of the best um, winter stroke Christmas songs Ever. It's very melancholy and lovely. And I think my reading of it is it says a little bit about his experiences of Christmas and how, you know, Christmas gave him joy as a kid, you know, he might not have. But um, it's got this real combination of wonder and longing that really represents Christmas. There
1: was always Christmas time. Jesus came to stay. I could believe in peace on earth. And I could watch TV all day.
2: And then, obviously, my phone starts going. (laughs) Can you talk? And I was like, no. Do you know what? What I want to do tonight is... I, you know, it's Christmas Day, so I've had a few glasses of wine um, and I've had too much turkey and I'm home with my family. My two-year-old's finally in bed. My sister-in-law and I just basically had a George Michael evening and a lot of it was playing songs that we loved and just wanted to dance to and just remember, you know, we did have a different corner on and it was like, oh, you know, but we just had this sort of, you know, wake in my kitchen. <laughs> I think what the thing that was sad about it is it wasn't unexpected. He obviously had had a very tough couple of decades, really, you know he seemed to be occasionally still making good music but you know all the stories came out about him afterwards his generosity and the money he'd given to people and all this stuff you know i felt kind of like he had been appreciated more as a musician before his death but obviously after his death like so many people you get all the appreciation you know you should have had in your career as well Um, (laughs) just
0: just in time just just too late One of the things that's important when you're a kid and you get into a musician, when you're a teenager, you want them to be a bit mean and a bit nasty. Mm. But sometimes when you're a kid, you want to get into into a musician because they seem to be nice, like you want to be friends with them. Mm. They look like they'd be fun. And I think that comes over with the early wham stuff. And then later on, the stories you heard about his later life and his generosity, philanthropy, his attitude to people, his his, uh, kind of screw you confidence in himself. You went, oh, I like you. Yeah. And then you look back at those early videos and you went, oh, it was radiating off you in the first place, that you yeah. seemed to be decent. There seemed to be music that came from your heart. Mm. It didn't seem, I mean, it sounds a stupid thing to say. Something as big and dumb and colourful and day glow as this shouldn't be cynical, but this stuff can be cynical. You've seen cynical pop yeah. made by factories, made for money. The thing about Wham! is they make this incredible factory tooled pop that goes straight to number one, takes them to the top of the American album charts, bashes the world open. Mm. But it doesn't appear to be cynical at all. No. He seems to be a nice guy.
2: And that's what you respond to as a kid, and that's what you respond to when you're past your, you know, desperate to rebellious, I guess, you know. Um,
0: he's really bad for gloomy indie kids, and he's bad for Morrissey and good for everyone else.
2: Yeah, yeah and, <laughs> you know, but you don't realise that, kind of, for a while, do you? You know, I, every time Last Christmas comes on, I, I never get sick of that either. You know, it's such a... <laughs> it's just so brilliant, and it's so... You know, the video, it's desperately cheesy, and they're in the snow and all this stuff, but it looks, It's fun.
1: You've never seen us look so stupid in your life?
2: So Wan in China, Foreign Skies, which is... The Freedom video was compiled of clips from this film, which hadn't been released yet. The American uh, video for Freedom. The film is a really interesting watch. So when I was starting to dig into freedom a bit in my book kind of it was a really horrible you know winter's afternoon i thought do you know what sod it i'm just going to sit in my bed <laughs> with a cup of tea and some biscuits and watch this and it's directed by lindsay anderson you know the what yes what legendary yes. you know Amazing. british director um, who said he only wanted to do it for the money which is very funny and you know and cuz you know get to go to china and be part of this you know cultural event and all this kind of stuff you know it's quite weird and it's just then you know what happens on this visit and it's this odd combination of promotional vehicle but trying to make a kind of some subtle comments on what's going on and again george and andrew's sweetness and george's cleverness because george you know speaks more because andrew's the quiet one you know really comes out and so you've got george michael and andrew ridgely floating through you know china floating's the perfect word. yeah they are sort of (laughs) gliding through and you've got all these you know Tourist shots of temples and bicycles and there's one bit there's this big square and all these bicycles and I went is that Tiananmen Square and it is Tiananmen Square you know oh so God. like five years later it would come to me something very different to the western world and there's saw sort of, people are sort of edging around each other not sure what to do you know there's like these 2,000 wattage smiles off the boys but George says something which really stuck with me and I remember writing it down because I just thought it was so good he said um a lot of the people, the younger people, you know, meaning in this situation in China.
1: I think a lot of people, the younger people, are very excited about it. And obviously there are those that are older that think it's the, uh, the beginning of the end.
2: The beginning of the end. <laughs> um, oh. And I love that. And kind of, um, you know, what's interesting about pop music and what is so fascinating and exciting about pop music is, you know, people dismiss it as dumb and silly, but also, it's the first thing that gets banned. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. escapism, it's expression, it's thrill, it's naked emotions laid at raw, it's girls screaming, it's kind of visceral reactions. It's all this kind of stuff that is dangerous.
0: It's amazing it can still be a threat. Girls
2: screaming. It can still be
0: seen as a threat. It can still be treated as yeah, a threat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're un- uncorking something that they'd rather keep corked. The looks from all the authority figures in the, the China video, they're just looking... At And you wonder whether... I mean, some of this is obviously just they're going to be suspicious. There's a film crew there. But they look really twitchy that they've allowed these people in, like these strange creatures have been allowed in. Um, And I think Napier Mm. Bell did a slightly dodgy thing where he, he offered them two different promotional packages. They could take Wham! or they could take Queen... Uh, with the options, and he did a nice package that made Wham! look like nice middle-class boys and then just put some flamboyant pictures of Freddie out and the Chinese went, not him! So they've, they've taken the lesser of the two evils yeah. in, but they're still very cautious around yeah. them. But all you're seeing is these very, very nice, clever boys wandering around and being treated like they're going to cause some trouble, like they're the sex pistols or something. It's really interesting.
2: Yeah, because what they're going to do is they're going to make young people, especially young women, you know, scream all yeah. kind of react. Yeah, I've always found that really fascinating. I've written about it over the years and I don't write about boy bands or girls and boy bands in my books. I thought that's what everyone expects a female journalist to write and I've written about it before. But um there's this you know the American writer Barbara Ehrenreich has written a lot about this. She wrote about um you know about Beatlemania and the danger and what it represented. It's just this unfettered, uncorked as you say. Uncorked is a great verb. It's not even sexuality. It's it's sort of like the possibility of you know, kind of escape and the possibility of sexuality and it's about possibilities and where they could take you. You know, some of the Wham songs, you know, seem so packaged and perfect and they're not telling you to go and, you know, burn down the (laughs) parliament buildings. They're telling you to have fun. But, you know, fun is dangerous, of course. And what's great is as a seven-year-old, I responded to that. I'm nearly 44. I still respond to that and it doesn't take me back to childhood. It doesn't make me want to be a kid, not at all. It just makes me it sort of wraps me up in a comfort blanket. It kind of says, here's this lovely thing that has ambition and thrill and two friends making music and taking their songs to the world and you know something you you can share I can share with my friends and you know that's why it's immensely comforting you know it's um it's just this thing that kind of brings people together in this heightened emotional state (laughs) but you know dictators don't want us excitable and bound together in emotional states do they no they want us to just you know do the opposite
0: There's a lovely thing about what you just said about friends. The running joke for years was that Andrew Ridgely's like the spare part, the spare wheel. The other guy, when he watched the beginning of, uh, of of the first gig they play in the China film, he stands around. He's not got a microphone. He's got the guitar on his neck, but he doesn't, there's no guitar part for the first three minutes. He's just, it's <laughs> like he's got a ticket to the gig. He's having a lovely time, but he's not part. There's, yeah. there's a horn section, there's backing vocalists, there's two other guitarists and a bass player and drummer, and he's just there. And I used to, as a, an annoying boy, watch it and go, he's not really doing anything. But then I thought about it again and thought, but he's George's friend. Yeah,
2: he's, a mo- he's support, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, they,
0: there's no point. This would be a very different gig if it was a George Michael gig. But it's a Wham gig and it's two friends have gone to China, have conquered the world. And they've done it because they got the record deal together. They wrote the demo together. They were co-writing them. They've only later decided that George is the guy who's going to write all the songs. This was a a thing they promised each other they were going to do
1: take over the world
2: Mm.
1: well for a while it was just absolutely magical playing out and with your best mate you know playing out your fantasies it was just a dream obviously and the story
0: i think particularly for kids it's not as interesting watching one person sing as it is watching some friends have fun and i don't think i'd appreciate quite what andrew ridge is giving which is at this lovely look it's a very easy sell to children and to young people, that they'll be able to be with their friends. It's really warm.
2: Yeah. And I think that's part of the comfort.
0: What would be the fun of having this song about potential and excitement and thrills and if your mate's not there? And I think that's what's oddly magical about Andrew Richley having a guitar around his neck and not even playing it for the first two minutes of the song is, yeah, but he needs to be there, doesn't he? Because otherwise it's not wham.
2: Yeah, it's just... You just made me want to go and listen to it now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you so much for bringing in Freedom by Wham! What a pleasure.
2: Well, what a privilege to bring it in for you. <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> Let's put it on the shelf just there in case we need to get some joy later.
2: Absolutely. Don't lose it.
0: Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media. And don't forget to like and subscribe.
1: Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil.